Hi, this is John. Today we're podcasting from the offices of the Washington Monthly in Washington, D.C. We don't write about the news. We write about what ought to be the news. Since Ronald Reagan came into power, and even starting kind of under Jimmy Carter, we've had an economic system that concentrates wealth in a small subset of places. There was this substantive area where a number of candidates had an idea about what to do for the American economy that wasn't getting any coverage. And so we decided to start writing about that. What's the most important thing you learned working for President Clinton? That average people can be made to understand sophisticated arguments and policies if you say it right. This is Podcasting with John Metaxas. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It is Tuesday, March 19th, and it's my pleasure to have with me today my old friend Paul Glastris, editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly, along with two rising stars at the magazine, Daniel Block, an editor at the magazine, and Eric Cordelessa, who's the digital editor. Gentlemen, great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Paul, this is the 50th anniversary of your esteemed magazine, and why don't we begin by... Uh, talking about what the Washington Monthly is. It's a different kind of publication. What, in your opinion, does it offer readers that might be unique from other publications? Well, thanks for the question. You know, the Monthly's been around for 50 years. It's always been a small magazine uh, with a very elite audience, elite in the sense of people who read the New York Times every day very carefully, read their local paper, and come away thinking, I'm not getting the full story, and they're eager to read a couple of 5,000-word deep-dive pieces on policy, politics, and government. So that's what we are. We're a magazine devoted to uh, reporting, uncovering, explaining, and offering new ideas about government policy and politics in America. Do you believe in labels? Uh, you know, depends on the label. Uh, so what label would we give your magazine? I would say grumpily liberal. Okay. All right, I can, I can, I can. Uh, Grumpily, in the sense that we we um, get, you know, we're definitely a magazine of the left. We always have been, um, but you know, we try to uh, point out where liberals go wrong in their thinking, in their actions, in their policies, and are are constantly challenging uh, both liberals and conservatives to to rethink and do better. You obviously owe a lot to the founder of the magazine, Charles Peters, who went to uh, my alma mater, Columbia University. Tell us about him and, and how he may still be influencing what this magazine is. So uh, all of us who worked for Charlie in the 30-plus years he was the founding, the editor, um, got kind of implanted into us his worldview and his style of thinking and editing, which is extremely rigorous, but also... Um, anti-elite in the sense of don't use fancy words, treat the reader uh, with respect, treat your opponents with respect, and write in a way that, that is entertaining as well as enlightening. And uh, he, uh, you know, he's still a presence in the magazine. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary, uh, had a party for him. And, um, uh, you know, his values and his, his way of looking at the world is very much alive. So you've had quite a run. You started here, you went on to great things, worked for President Clinton, and, and now are back as editor-in-chief. Tell us about a little bit about your career for those who are not familiar with it. So yeah, you're right. I actually started as an intern here in the 80s and then 
worked my way into an editorship, then spent 10 years with U.S. News and World Report, uh, mostly as a correspondent, and then uh, spent two and a half years as a speechwriter for President Clinton. And when I finished that, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do in life, didn't want to go back to news magazines, and Charlie wanted to retire. So I, I said, I'll, I'll give that a try. And uh, another friend of ours, Marcos Kunalakis, the journalist and investor, became my partner, and we, we for about six, seven years with Marcos, and then and then uh, more independently have been running the magazine as a nonprofit. I'm curious, so what's the most important thing you learned working for President Clinton? That average people can be made to understand sophisticated arguments and policies uh, if you say it right, that, that nothing is beyond the grasp of the average person um, and that the country is actually hungry for substance because we, we would write uh, his States of the Union address. All the journalists made fun of us because they were laundry lists and they went on for an hour and a half. And the funny thing is the uh, when they measured the audience numbers, there were more people listening at the end than at the beginning. So people loved that. They loved hearing what the president had to say on a substantive basis about the country. And, you know, there's a kind of uh, line of argument based on a lot of evidence, but it's still an argument by political scientists that the public doesn't care about policy. And it's probably true they don't make their voting decisions based on policy, but they really do care about it. And, uh, and they take it seriously and so do we. Well, speaking of policy, Daniel, you've just written a piece for the magazine about antitrust policy. Tell us about your thesis. So the thesis, in short, is that if Democrats want to win elections in the future, they need to have better competition policy. And it's framed kind of in this very practical, utilitarian way. Uh, but there's underlying it as, I think, this kind of moral argument. So the practical side of it is, right now, wealth, opportunity are concentrated in a very small subset of cities. And when you say better competition policy, you mean antitrust, monopoly? Antitrust policy, monopoly, um, but also talk about airline regulation and policies that make it easy to transport goods and people to different parts of the country rather than just from, say, New York to San Francisco or L.A. to D.C. The reality is since Ronald Reagan came into power and even starting kind of under Jimmy Carter, we've had an economic system that concentrates wealth in a small subset of places, mostly along the coasts. And as a result, vast swaths of the interior of the country have been completely left behind. And this is bad for obvious ethical reasons. It means that large numbers of Americans are not benefiting from America's economic system. And it creates this huge degree of regional inequality. But for the Democratic Party, it's been pretty politically disastrous because in short, Democrats do best in cities. They do best in urban areas. And if you look at the map in 2016, part of the reason why Hillary Clinton lost the Electoral College but won the popular vote is because she ran up vote margins in large, successful, successful in a kind of economic sense, coastal megacities. But those places were already blue. And so she carried California by an immense margin. But because these kind of nodes of democratic support in the heartland in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, weren't thriving, 
she simply wasn't able to win enough votes there to flip those states. So in your view, what's the prescription that a potential candidate should be putting out there? Well, the good news is we can look back and see what we used to do that created for a long time a convergence of equality across the country, and it was a strong regime of competition policy. So the government for a while prevented very large firms from merging with one another to create these kind of mega entities that could dominate sales or creation across the United States. So for example, in the 1960s, the Supreme Court actually blocked a merger between two shoe producers that combined, they would have only controlled about 2% of the U.S. shoe market. But the idea was, look, the government wants to be serious about making sure that one region can't dominate the market across the country for a particular product like footwear. Um, that's obviously not the case today. Amazon controls something like 50% of America's e-commerce market. So part of it involves rolling back those kinds of mega mergers, breaking up large companies like Amazon that are sucking the wealth out of different parts of the country and channeling it all to the places where they're headquartered, which is Seattle, and now soon also the Washington DC region. And then another piece of it, I was talking about airline deregulation earlier, is re-regulating the airline industry. Uh, the reality is, for decades, we regulated our major forms of transportation to make sure it costs the same, more or less, on a per-mile basis to get from one city to another, regardless of where that city was. Uh, so when railroads were the main form of transportation uh, back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, we had these commissions that made sure railroads couldn't price gouge people who lived in smaller parts of the country and offer huge discounts to people traveling from one large city to another. And when air transport became big, we kept that basic framework in place until the late 1970s when we got rid of the body that made sure that the price of traveling from different places to another was roughly equal. And since then, the cost of flying to heartland cities has just skyrocketed. So I presume, Paul, this kind of story is furthering uh, your mission to put ideas out there. In this case, is it fair to say uh, to challenge the orthodoxy that's taken hold in this country the last 30 years that regulation is bad? Absolutely. And, you know, I want to point out that the stuff that the story that Daniel did, no one else has come close to writing that story. In fact, we have been writing about the deleterious effects of industry concentration on and how it has depressed jobs, depressed wages, uh, depressed innovation, um, and led to you know this whole swath of the country uh, falling behind. We were we've been doing this for over a decade, and only in the last few years have other have you know major economists come in and validated the kind of stuff we were writing, and, and have uh, journalists been been jumping on it. It's still at a nascent phase, but uh, that's what we do at the Washington Monthly. We try to we try to get ahead of the news. Uh, we don't write about the news. We write about what ought to be the news, and we just keep repeating it over and over until people get it. We're podcasting from the offices of the Washington Monthly. We're speaking with editor-in-chief Paul Glastris, along with uh, two editors at the magazine, Daniel Block and Eric Cordelessa. Erica, you two are working on a story along similar lines. Tell us about what you're working on. Well, you know, as Paul just said, you know, the Washington Monthly has been covering the deleterious impacts of concentration for over a decade now. And so as we were watching the election unfold, it became clear that more and more candidates who are entering the Democratic fold 
were the very people who have actually been championing renewing antitrust for the last couple of years, and that included people like Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, Amy Klobuchar, who's a senator from Minnesota and the ranking member of the Senate Antitrust Committee, and, uh, and even Cory Booker, who has taken a really strong stance on preventing big ag mergers. And it just became clear that this was sort of a pattern, a trend that was bubbling beneath the surface, and that there was this substantive area where a number of candidates had an idea about what to do for the American economy that wasn't getting any coverage. And so we decided to start writing about that. So uh, very quickly, summarize uh, what uh, some of those ideas are. So the most prominent idea would be uh, Elizabeth Warren's proposal to break up uh, big tech like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google. But you've also seen uh, actual legislation come from Cory Booker, who proposed placing a moratorium on all ag mergers uh, for 18 months. Uh, you've seen bills that have been proposed by Amy Klobuchar uh, to ramp up antitrust enforcement and make it uh, give the tools to the already existing monopoly fighting uh, agencies to be able to determine when a merger and acquisition uh, makes a market uncompetitive. And so you already see some of these ideas bubbling with these candidates who have been thinking about it really before it became fashionable to even do so. All right, I'll throw this question out to the three of you. Do you really think these ideas uh, will catch on, especially when the opposite point of view is vilifying the left for being socialists? Not that regulation is necessarily equivalent with socialism, but how much do you believe these ideas can catch on? That's a really good question. We're finally going to have a test because, as Eric pointed out, uh, you finally have serious candidates on the Democratic side beginning to make these arguments to voters, to real voters. I'm not sure the voters are ready to hear it because this has not been part of the discussion in this country for decades. But part of me thinks it, they, it will catch on, and let me tell you why. For 100 years, from the late 1880s into, into the 1960s and even the 70s, the issue of monopoly in capitalism was front and center in political debates. Political campaigns were run on it. Major landmark legislation was was made. Both parties competed to see who can bring more competition and less monopoly into different marketplaces. It was front of mind for entrepreneurs, company owners, average people, store owners for decades. This is something that grew out of the American experience. We've done this before. Unlike socialism, which has never quite caught on in the United States, at least not, you know, in any systematic way, you know, this, this, the, these competition policies that I've talked, we're talking about, really do reflect American, uh, the American spirit and American ways of handling the sort of excesses of capitalism. And somewhere under the surface, we all understand that markets are terrific in many ways, but that like any system with the wrong rules, they go out, they get out of control. All right, let's shift gears uh, to another idea that uh, you've written about. I learned about this only a couple of years ago when my son came home from college and informed me that I was the beneficiary of white male privilege, which I had never heard of till he brought it back from current academia to me, because Paul, it, it did not exist, that idea, when we went to college. You've now written an interesting piece that takes off on that and takes it further. Tell us about it. Well, it really is a, a, a story that links to this issue we've been talking about, which is 
monopoly, and especially Daniel's story on regional inequality and how monopoly capitalism is is leaving much of the country behind economically. And the basic concept, like you, I, I, the, the the privilege dialogue was not happening when we were in college, but fortunately, my my daughter knows all about it, and uh, some of the young people here know about it. So it's something I had to learn. The basic idea is that we are we tend to be blind to the advantages we have by not being in an oppressed minority and it, we find it very difficult to understand what it's like to what the conditions are that we don't face and that in fact we get advantage of because we don't face and you know there's you know white privilege male privilege cisgender privilege and what you know whatever you think about the dialogue about privilege there's certainly something to it and what what i suggested in the article is we need to apply it to another realm and that is what what i called uh coastal urban privilege and coastal urban privilege is uh basically the advantages that you get from living in a place like washington dc New York City, Seattle, Boston, San Francisco, where the jobs are growing, the wages are going up, the salaries are already high, you have tremendous opportunity, but that opportunity is a little bit ill-gotten, and it isn't necessarily the result of the population's, you know, liberalism or innovation or whatever, it's monopoly, right? The, the monopoly firms like, like Amazon are buying up companies from my hometown of St. Louis. But when I was went away to college in, in, in 1977, St. Louis had 22 Fortune 500 companies. Today it has nine, right? The, and it's, St. Louis has been stripped of its, of its um, economic wealth. And where do those companies reside now? They reside in New York and Chicago and Seattle. So, so basically I'm, I'm saying that those in the big metro areas should wake up to what monopoly is doing to their other citizens. All right. There's a lot more to your argument than that, but we do want people to go to your website because I understand you don't have a firewall. Is that correct? Yeah, no, there's, uh, we, we don't, uh, everything that we publish is, is online and free and available. There's no uh, payment for it. It's washingtonmonthly.com. All right. Before we wrap up, there's one word we haven't uttered in this interview, and that word is Trump. I hesitate to say it, but uh, what do you see as your role in the era of Trump? That's a really good question. If you go to our website, you'll see that we, you know, we're putting out a lot of stories every day, analyzing the news. A lot of it is about the Mueller investigation, um, you know, the breaking news of the day. So, so if you know, I, I feel like we're contributing to the broader effort by journalists to understand and, and, and in many ways fight against the nonsense and lying coming out of the White House. Again, we're a magazine of the left and you, you won't be you know, that surprised that we have the stands that we do. In the magazine, however, we kind of ignore Trump. If the rest of the press corps were ignoring Trump, we would be all over him. We were all over George W. Bush because we thought the Back then in the early 2000s, the press corps was going way too light on him. Now, I, I don't feel that Trump lacks aggressive pushback from the print media. We're focused on the future. We're focused on issues 
like antitrust, like um, reforming the higher education system, like Congress rebuilding its capacity to think and do oversight, reforms that aren't getting enough attention and we think are the most important things that Congress and the American people should be discussing. So we're, we're looking to the future. All right. Well, Paul Glastris, editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly, along with his editors, Daniel Block and Eric Cordelessa. Gentlemen, you're uh, fighting the uh, grumpy liberal fight. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much. To listen to more podcasts with John Metaxas, go to johnmetaxas.com.